thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we conclude our study of the book of Numbers. Before we get into the details of two really interesting chapters, it would be well for us to remember that the focus of Exodus and Numbers has been that of a journey, an exodus, out of Egypt into the Promised Land. It is important for us to remember that this journey is not about geography. It is not about economy, or primarily about geography economy. And it wasn't even about miracles. This journey was really about liturgy. And you will see it again today. If throughout this study we've succeeded in making that shift away from the miraculous and extraordinary, which are very important, but towards the meat of it, which is God is with us, Emmanuel. He is present in our midst. He wants us to live with Him as we would a family. Then we would have received the essence, if you will, of what these two books are all about. Now, when we come back, we're going to delve into Deuteronomy and um, uh, Leviticus. If if, um, Exodus and Numbers were about liturgy, were about God's presence, so the spiritual aspect, if you will, the Deuteronomy and Leviticus are all about morality. They, the, these two books are primarily geared to show us that God is in our midst and we ought to worship Him. In Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you will find definitely ecclesiology, or if you will, the life of the priests. But you will also find morality. And all of these Books, all of Genesis, I mean, all of the Pentateuch and the books of the Old Testament are there to prepare us, to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord in our hearts. We have to make this journey, walking with Israel, to get to the threshold of the New Testament when Jesus comes in our hearts. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the roads, right? The call of St. John the Baptist. The whole purpose of studying the Old Testament is to really realize what we have, which they didn't have, and wonder then what must we do now to receive Jesus. 
I'm hoping that as you walk through these studies, you're beginning to realize that it is not a question about being a good person. That to enter the kingdom of heaven, it is not enough to be good. Jesus himself rebuked that notion with the rich man. The rich man called him good master. And Jesus turned around and said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. It isn't about being sincere in our belief. It's not enough. It isn't about obeying the Ten Commandments, more or less, in those big ticket items. You know, I don't steal. Well, I may not pay my taxes completely, but I'm really not stealing. It's my money after all, you know. I'm not looking at my neighbor's wife. Besides, she's ugly. But I watch R-rated movies. Nobody's hurt. Not enough. Faith, I hope you begin to understand, is not about legality. It's not simply, oh, there's these rules. I'm going to obey them to the letter. I come to communion. I will fast one hour. On the watch. I'll go to Mass. I'll say my rosaries. I'll do this and then the other. You can do all these things. I can do all these things. And end up in hell. Now it might sound really intriguing or strange. But really it isn't. You could live in your parents house. And obey the rules of your parents. To a T. Do all your chores. Do all the things you're supposed to do. Be a straight A student. All the way through. And never ever look at your dead mom and say I love you. Are you really part of the family? Are you? Do you get what I'm saying? Okay. It's about love. Yeah? Yeah. Love is not licentiousness. It's not about what I want to do when I want to do it. Love is about doing what pleases the other. Therefore, I must know what pleases the other. And once I know it, I must do it. Make sense? That's how you love. Find out what the others need are truly, then do them. Then you love. That's simple. Doesn't it take PhD in theology? It doesn't take us speaking Greek or Latin or Hebrew or Aramaic to do any of this. Yes? Find out what the others want and do it. I'll give you an example. One of the things that pleases my wife the most is when I do the bed. She likes it that when we get out of bed, the minute we are out of bed, the bed is done. Yeah? Okay. Now, that notion is as abstract to me as the end of the universe is. I can't even begin to fathom why. I I don't, really. Same thing with flowers. I don't know why she likes flowers. Yeah, they're pretty. I mean, they're beautiful colors and stuff. But, I mean, they don't look like a computer to me. There is no keyboard and there's no mouse. And there's no USB port. I can do anything with them. Right? Then they whittle and die. Okay? But does it really matter? Do I need to understand all this? Do I need to um, submit her to an interrogation? And bore her to death with my questions? Is that love? See my point? Okay. Now, if if this little thing is a mystery to me, 
how much more God is a mystery. Yeah? Another example. The veil. Put a veil on your head, right? To a lot of women, it's a mystery. It's a problem. It's a challenge. Many don't want to do it. They don't understand it. Just, I don't understand this business of the bed. Right? They just don't understand it. So you can fall into this trap of, let me see what the code of canon law says. Yeah, you can do that. It's a good thing, actually, to find out what the code of canon law says. And you get into becoming almost like a canon lawyer, arguing the point. Yeah, you could do that. Is that what God wants? Okay. See, God, and now you, you understand the gift of the church. The church is inerrant. The church is the model of a mother. She is never wrong. Mom is always right, you know. The church is always right. We're not. We're not always right. The church is. When it comes to teaching us about the things that please God, pleases God, nobody knows more than mom. Nobody. So the church says, put a veil on your head. Now you have two options. You can do what I'm doing, or could do with my wife and bore her to death with all my questions. Or you could have the attitude of ready obedience that comes out of love. I don't understand why, but you say it, I'll do it. Then you do it. You put a veil on your head. You ignore everything else, you just do it. And you know what is the marvelous thing that happens when you have that gift of ready obedience? Truth is then revealed to you. Then you understand why. That's what Jesus said. Follow me. I will lead you to the truth. The truth will set you free. You've got to follow him before you understand. Get it? That's what you have to do. Ready obedience. You follow him. Then you understand. Then he reveals to you the understanding. And that understanding sets you free. In that order. Instead, most of us spend 25 25 years of our lives analyzing every comma and every point and asking every question and finding every church and studying the thing to death before we take action. Get up, take the child and his mother and go to Egypt. He got up, he took the child and his mother in the middle of the night and he went to Egypt. Egypt is bigger than California. Didn't ask where in Egypt. I don't speak Egyptian. Do they have a stock exchange? No question. Nothing. Not a word came out of the mouth of St. Joseph. Ready obedience. That's holiness. Right there. Okay? You can go back and read these two books, Exodus and Numbers, in through these, through this filter, and you would see that most often than not, the problem of Israel is the exact opposite. Oh, you took us out of Egypt to bring us here to kill us, because we don't have our, you know, parsley and mint and... and uh, Fish and food, etc., right? It's the exact opposite, and most of us are in that boat of, of not being willing to fall on our knees and say, Yes, Lord, what you do, I'll do. What you say to do, I'll do. That's it. Yeah? These two books were really about God showing us, I am with you. Yes, you're going through the wilderness, it's a dangerous place to be. But I am with you. I am taking you there. Fear not. Do not be afraid. So, during this uh, 
break, find yourself a good book on the life of a saint. Okay? Pick up a good book on the life of a saint. You want some books. Um, if you haven't read it yet, The Song of Bernadette. Marvelous book to read, The Song of Bernadette. If you want something different, you can read Wisdom's Fool. It's a short book on the life of St. Louis de Montfort. Beautiful book. Wisdom's Fool. The life of St. Uh, um, Louis de Montfort. You can pick any book on the life of Padre Pio. Any book on Padre Pio. If you haven't read The Story of a Soul, highly recommended. Story of the Soul by St. Therese of Lisieux. If you want something more spiritual, pick up Introduction to the Devout Life. Introduction to the Devout Life by um, St. Francis Xavier? Mm, No, I don't think Francis Xavier. Introduction to the Devout Life by... Yeah, I think it's Francis Xavier. Yeah. Um, You want something a little bit more meatier and historical? Pick up the life of St. John Canisius. C-A-N-I-S-U-S. St. John Canisius. Doctor of the church. Not as well known as he ought to be. And he lived during the Council of Trent. You want a great consolation for the troubles we're going through? Read that book. You'll see what the Council of Trent had to go through. And you will feel consoled. Um... You're looking for books to help you grow in your spiritual life or in your moral life? Pick up Spiritual Combat. Spiritual Combat. It's anonymous. I mean, there is done something or the other, but uh, it's published by Tan called Spiritual Combat. Um, You can't go wrong with this one either. Great book. Read it slowly, chapter a day. If uh, a good companion for this would be um, uh, the Imitation of Christ. And, so this, is, this was written by um, um, Thomas Akempis, right? Akempis, Akempis. And try to find, though it's rare, it's hard to find, but try to find the companion book he wrote, Imitation of Mary. Very few people know that we have that. Okay, there are two Imitation of Marys, though. One by him and one by someone else. I have both. Okay. Imitation of Mary by Thomas A. Kempis. Beautiful book. You want something a little bit more uh, geared towards your moral life? Pick up Joseph of Nazareth and Mary of Nazareth. These are written by a priest who is a member of Opus Dei and focus more on the virtues. If you want a greater devotion to St. Joseph, Joseph of Nazareth will be an awesome book to read. Very Short books. There are about 200 pages each. I don't know. Maybe that's long for you. It's short by my standards. So, um, these are great books to read. You're looking for something to help your daily life? Look into the writings of St. Jose Maria Estriva. You might find them very enlightening and consoling. St. Jose Maria Escriva. Jose Maria Escriva, who is the founder of Opus Dei. Um, those would be also very good books to, uh, to read. Um, you want uh, f- uh, to deepen your devotion to Our Lady? 
read The Glories of Mary by St. Alphonsus Liguri. And, and if you really want a, a book that will knock your socks off, read The Immaculate Conception and the Holy Spirit. Very short book, probably like 60 pages, really short. The Immaculate Conception and the Holy Spirit. It's written by a French priest, uh, Father Monteau Bonami. Never mind the name, just the title, you'll, find, you'll be able to find it. And it is a reflection on the theological thoughts of St. Maximilian Kolbe about Our Lady. Okay? The Holy Spirit and the Immaculate Conception. Incredible book. This is the book, by the way, that got Scott Hahn to tip over on Our Lady. That book. Um, so, pick up something, read the catechism, please, read the catechism, just a paragraph a day, right? A paragraph a day of the catechism will keep the devil away, just read the catechism every day, right? Read scriptures, so, you can, I wouldn't recommend you read Deuteronomy and Leviticus on your own, don't do that, okay? You might be discouraged from coming to this Bible study, they're really difficult books to read, but read the Gospels, so pick up a um, a book with a commentary. So you have two choices now. You have the Navarre Bible, so you can buy them individually. It's about 17 bucks or 15 bucks for the Gospels. I re- recommend you pick up St. Matthew or St. Luke. Right? Read them with the commentaries. Do that. Or uh, Ignatius now has also a commentary. Pick up that and read. Right? So make sure you do something and you don't fall by the wayside because there's no Bible study. Because what will we be telling God? What are you telling God, right? Think about that. That's important. And um, I'll see you when we're back in October. And I'll, I'll let uh, Liliana, I need to talk to my wife and coordinate with her when we think it would be a good idea to start the, the Bible study, all right? Any questions on these books? Any other recommendations, by the way, books that you read that, about the lives of the saints that you liked, that you would like to share with others? Yes. Yes. So, Open Sanctorum Angelorum is, a, is an order that really focuses on consecration of the guardian angel. And when they started, actually, they had quite a bit of trouble with the Vatican. They were not, um, they, were, they, they had issues, because they were following somebody with some private revelation, and then they were starting to name angels left and right, so the Vatican had to come in and then clean, clean up house. And it looks right now that, yes, um, I think they're, they're in good standing right now. And the reason is because we know a priest who happens to know them pretty, pretty well, so... They produced some of the best CDs I've heard on music, on angels, uh, great, great stuff. So, so the website is opus, opusangelorum.org, opusangelorum.org. Yes, yes, absolutely, thank you, thank you. The Diary of St. Maria Faustina, great read, and the other one also, um, I, I, I forgot the exact title, but it's the Diary of St. Catherine of Siena. Spiritual Dialogues, I think it's called. I think it's called Spiritual Dialogues, something like that. The Diary of St. Catherine of Siena. Wonderful read, yes. So anything, anything from uh, Pope Benedict. By the way, there is a website you can go to. It's called, uh, uh, I haven't gone in a while, but I used to go to it very often because I'm, I'm a proud member. It's called Ratzinger Fan. Radzingerfan.org, and it was before he, he, he became Pope. It was a bunch of guys or gals who were all fans of Cardinal Radzinger. 
and you'll see a listing of all his writings. Anything, anything by Pope Benedict is worth writing because he writes with crystal clear precision. Right? He's very clear and didactic. He's trying to communicate to our level. John Paul II was a brilliant thinker. He's an anthropologist, and he was writing to philosophers. Most of his writings tend to be less accessible to us because he had some people in mind that he was contending with. Yes? Not translated. It's the... It's uh, Yes, so Theology of the Body for Dummies, basically, by Christopher West, will be easier than the book itself, Theology of the Body. Right? So if you are, if you, especially for the youth, or those dealing with youth, or those dealing with sexual afflictions of any kind, that's also a good book to have. Right? Yes. A Friend in Need. St. Jude wrote that book? No. Oh, it's a book about St. Jude. My bad. Oh, that's wonderful. There's a book on St. Jude. I didn't know that. A Friend in Need. I need to check it out. Very few know that, but St. Jude was the, was the first um, bishop of Beirut. So, um, yeah. St. Jude, A Friend in Need. And he's, I mean, the, the amazing thing about him is that he is the patron saint of impossible causes. I don't know really, I don't really know why. I hope they explain it in the book, do they? Yeah? All right. Good. Now we need to go through this. And there are six points that I want to make in the study today, which are important, actually, and striking. Two chapters, 35 and 36, the end of the book of Numbers. And in the first one, in the first chapter, 35, the, we deal with the Levitical towns, the cities of refuge. We're going to talk about deliberate and voluntary homicide. And then in, in the chapter 6, marriage requirements for heiresses, marriage requirements. So, before we get into the two chapters, we end the book of Numbers with two themes, murder and marriage. Now here's the question, why? Why does it end with murder and marriage? Let's take a step back. Let's, look, let's deal with murder first. Marriage we could understand, right? Why murder? Take a step back. God said, I will be with you, Yeah? I'm going to take you to the promised land. I'm going to give it to you. And then, he's talking about murder. Okay? Reduce that down to a family. The father is telling the family, we bought a house. So it's another city. We're going to go there. And, usually, what do you talk about? Well, the layout of the house, how many rooms, who's going to sleep where, who's going to get what room, right? Instead, the father says to his kids, now listen carefully. I'm going to set a bunch of laws about murder. If one of you kill the other involuntarily, now this is what's going to happen. But if one of you kill the other with premeditation, then this is what's going to happen. Now let's go celebrate our new house. What, what, what would you think? What's your th- take on what I just said? How does that make you feel? Right now, I just want your feeling, straight out. What did you say? Ah, you're being too smart here. Just give me your feeling. What do you feel about that? My dad is crazy. Okay. Intimidating, yeah. Confused. 
Yeah? This side of the aisle. We, yes, but why put rules for, for murder right there? Exactly. Obviously. He knows they are going to be killing each other. So what is the implication? Before why, what is the implication? What's the obvious implication? Pardon? No, no, you're going too far. Just back up from the brood of vipers. Hold on. What's the implication? Okay, he took them out of Egypt, out of bondage, brought them into the desert. He gave them the laws, gave them the tabernacle, gave them actually the means by which to live a holy life. And he ends by giving them rules about murder. What's the implication? True, action consequence, but the fundamental consequence or, or implication is that you don't have the perfect law in the promised land. You do not have the law of grace and peace in the promised land. God outwardly is telling them that's not what you're going to get. Do not have false expectations about what the promised land is going to be. It's not going to be what you think it is. There's going to be strife, and there's going to be murderers, and there's going to be blood, and there's going to be problems. Yeah? To the Jews receiving these laws, that should not come as a surprise, at least not yet. Because the religious consciousness has not yet developed to such a point for them to ask this question. Wait a minute, you give us all these laws, and you give us all these things to do, and by and large, our lives are not any better from any of the other nations out there. We have, we have the same problems. So why all these laws? Why all these things that you gave us if our lives are maybe only a little bit better than what's out there? You see that? I mean, you've got to understand, you've got to wonder, just a second, hold on. You've got to wonder about God's productivity. They've gone through a lot of trouble. For what exactly? They were living in Egypt. They had Goshen. It was pretty productive. They had a good life. And before they were slaves, they were pretty happy. Now, okay, we, we did a geographical translation from Egypt over to someplace north. And what do you end up with? When you have murderers, this is what you're going to do. So what is that suggesting? Yes. Yes. Very good point. Murders are its more of a personal relationship. So now God is saying, I'm not only interested in giving you laws that govern the whole of you, I'm also interested in giving you laws that govern your individual life. And we'll see quite a bit of that when we hit Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But I think also the implication is that perfection is not of this world. Yeah? Yes. Ah. Yes, absolutely. That's a very good um, insight. That God was protecting them from the outside, but now He wants them to re realize they're enemies of themselves. Yes, absolutely. That's part of His plan. You see the pedagogy of God. But guess what? Let's translate that over to the church. 
Jesus said the same thing. He couched it in parables, but it was no different. He said it many times. The kingdom of God is like a field. The son of man is the good sower who saw, who sows the good seed. The enemy, the enemy has access to the field, meaning the devil is in the church. And he's sowing the bad seeds. So in the church there are what? Good, good seeds and bad seeds all mixed up. Yeah? That should be given. If you understand that, then you become more realistic what you expect from the bishops and the Pope and, and you start thinking of them as some sort of CIOs that have to just clean house and, and then make sure that it's going to be, hey, oh, it's not going to work like this. It's just not going to work like this. Because from its foundation, God said, this is what it is. This is how it's going to work. This is not perfection. Yeah? Now, we have a new phenomenon here, whereby you have convicted Catholics who think they are living a good life and who are sinners, because the truth has been now really confused. Something we have to work with, right? That's an added twist in the whole mix. But just as you see the... The, the, the promised land being a land which is sacramental, which is for prayer, it overshadows, as somebody said back there, right? The church. Okay? Now, in that chapter, God first deals with the Levitical, Le- Levitical order. Remember, the Levites cannot own land. That's what they cannot own. doesn't mean they cannot own a house or Heard, They can't own land. Why? Because land back then was the currency. You have land, you have power, you have riches. You don't have land, you have none. Yeah? So when you hear land, think dollars, think stocks and bonds and whatever, right? So that's what they were not allowed to own, which is a foreshadowing of the vow of poverty that monks take. Yet they had to be able to live. So God provides for them 48 cities, towns. Don't, don't think San Diego. Right? So towns where they can live and own homes and be able to take care of their herds. And he specifies how far out they can take their herds and be able to care for them about... Um, uh, two, no, it's essentially the measuring, the measurement, the way they describe this chapter are kind of a little bit confusing. But think of it this way. What he says is that from the city, imagine the city is just a point. Draw a line out, a thousand cubit, north, south, east, and west. What do you get? You get a square that is 2,000 cubit in size, which is about 900 meters or 2,500 feet. Not huge. Okay? But the idea is, if that point expands out, so will this whole area. Yeah? That's what he gives them. From this, by the way, the rabbis derived the notion that on a Sabbath, remember, the Sabbath is not supposed to work. Well, if you're not supposed to work, well, walking is working. How far off are you allowed to walk? 
So the, those who lived in Qumran said 1,000, the length, and, those, and the rabbis said 2,000. This is how far you're allowed to, to, to walk before you break the Sabbath law. Now, how did they measure that? I have no clue, because they didn't have pedometers. <laughs> you, know, you know what a pedometer is. It's the little thing that you put in your pocket, and it tells you how many feet you walk. Right? How did they measure that? Well, yeah, but if you're walking from the dining room to the kitchen and back out and you're coming back, how do you, how do you isn't that interesting? You really have to count. And then what if you forgot? You see, you're going to wonder about these things. What, what if you had somebody who had Alzheimer? I mean, what happened to that poor guy? Oh, they did. They did, they did. Yeah, they had cancer, Alzheimer, the whole bit. It's just that many folks died before these things manifested itself, themselves. Be it as it may. He takes care of these people. And then he talks about... Murder. Now, two kinds of murder, right? Accidental. Uh, you're working out in the field. You start a fire. People die. You, you didn't have any intention of killing them. They died. You're on the boat with some people, the boat, the, and you're responsible for the boat. The boat capsizes, and they die. Well, you're working with, with the herd, and the herd just panic, and some people are killed. Many of these situations will happen. So God is saying, I am not going to, you're my chosen people. I'm not protecting you from those things. You notice? I'm not protecting you from those things. Do not assume that they're not going to happen to you. You hear what I'm saying? Therefore, none of us knows how we're going to die. None of us can assume that we know how we're going to die simply because we believe. That's presumption. We don't know. All we know is that we must be ready. That's it. Then there is premeditated murder. Oh, before we get into that. So if somebody committed a, somebody killed somebody accidentally, they are allowed to flee to cities of refuge. There are six of them. And there, they're cared for by the Levites. All right? On the other hand, if somebody kills someone in cold-blooded murder, then he must be killed. So that is what? What is the law behind that? An eye for an eye, right? The talion, right? The famous law that God gave Moses, right? He must be killed. Not him and his entire family, which is, would be the norm. So you can see how this restricts the punishment to one person. So the, the talion law is actually a social progress it's not a cruel law. It's much better. Because before, if somebody, I don't know, steals a cow from the neighbor, the neighbor might go and then just massacre the whole people. Whereas here, you have to, if, if, if I stole a cow, I need to give you the equivalent of the cow. That's far more just than what you had before. So here, if somebody dies, he did it on cold blood and murder, then he must... But, he can't just go and you can't just go and exact vengeance. Justice must be must prevail. Therefore, he must be brought before a court of the state, and two witnesses must um, um, give their witness and say that he indeed did it. And then, once all that procedure had taken place, the next of kin of the one who died proceeds and kills this person, right? To satisfy the Laws of blood, which were not necessarily God's laws, but they're ingrained in them, as it was in most of this area. 
and other places. And therefore, God uses that to achieve his aim. You understand? All right. All that is pretty straightforward. Where it gets really interesting is when God says, and it's, again, intriguing when you read it the first time, he says, let me just uh, read to you from the chapter. Uh, By the way, this law applies to everybody, including the the foreigners, which is extraordinary. It applied to anybody. So if you have the foreigner living amongst you, the same law would apply. Um, Okay, so... And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. That's next of kin. And the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge, to which he had fled. And he shall live in it. So the idea is, if somebody kills someone accidentally, he goes to the city of refuge. If he goes outside that city of refuge, meaning he leaves that city and wanders in the land, then he can be killed. Yeah? But as long as in the city of refuge, he's safe. Until the death of the high priest. Does that make sense? Once the high priest priest is dead, he's free to go anywhere. How does that make sense? How does that make sense? And why is it that if he wanders outside the area of the city, by the way, the restriction isn't just on the city proper, but the entire area, including um, um, essentially the the outer boundary where they're allowed to walk, bring their herd, right? Why is it with the death of the high priest? And why is it he has to stay there? Why is God confining them there? Let's answer the second question first. That's key. What is the whole... Let me ask you this question again. What is the promised land? If you had to tell me what the promised land was, starting with the word, it's a... Dot, dot, dot. What would that dot, dot, dot be? Close. Okay. One word. One word. Okay, not a church. A? Thank you. It's a? Temple. The promised land is a temple. It's a place of worship. God is giving them this place to worship. Keep that in mind. You have to understand that. We say it's a foreshadowing of the church. It's a place of worship. Who is present? God. Can God abide the spilling of blood? Can God abide the spilling of blood by one man against another? No, because this is against His law. Right? When He called on who? We go back to where? Sorry? Cain and Abel. Exactly. All the way back. Okay? Even involuntary manslaughter is unacceptable in God's eyes. Even that is unacceptable. That is why the one who committed this crime must be removed from the temple. Yeah? He must be removed from the temple. And God, because He knows it's involuntary, provides for Him a safe haven until the death of the high priest. Why? Yes. No, not all Levites are priests, right? Yeah. No, no. This is a good point you're bringing up. It's not about making, it's not about, oh, I spent 20 years there, I can go. No. He can go there. Let's say he goes there on Thursday. On Friday, on Friday, the high priest dies. 
He's free. The high priest, with his death, makes atonement for the sins of Israel. That's why. The high priest, in his death, makes atonement for the sins of Israel. A man in that role, in his death, makes atonement to the sins of Israel. Now that means, again, understand what that means. When I say make atonement, do not understand it with a Catholic perspective. In Catholicism, when I say makes atonement, we immediately understand, oh, sins are forgiven, life of grace is restored. Here, it's a foreshadowing. The communal sins of Israel are forgiven, so God is not going to send a plague on them. But there is no grace. There is no sanctifying grace here. You understand? It's a foreshadowing. Therefore, Israel does not have a plague coming at them. Make sense? That's why it is related to the death of the high priest. Likewise, when somebody commits a murder, because he desecrated the the temple, the only way to restore the temple is if his life is taken. There is no high priest making atonement for all of us. There is no high priest who can forgive us. There is no confession. There's nothing. Yeah? Yes. Correct. It is not because of what him individually can and cannot do. It is a foreshadowing of the sacrament. Yeah? When a priest says the word of consecration, even he, if he's a complete atheist, consecration takes place. Yes. Hmm? Yes. Likewise here. the role of, And we see it in the Gospel of St. John when uh, Cephas, uh, the high priest, prophesied and said, better than one perish, no, better than one man dies than the whole nation perishes. And St. John says he prophesied because he was the high priest. Even a corrupt man like Caiaphas had the gift of prophecy because he was the high priest. From that role, that, why did God do that? Because, again, he wants to teach them about the power of the liturgy, the power of the priest, so that when they see Jesus coming, they recognize him for who he is. Yeah? Now, I want to make, get you to reflect on something. God does not abide blood. Yeah? Okay, now you have to generalize this. Because later, Jeremiah will generalize this. Blood, incest, and any form of idolatry are unacceptable to God. To God. Yeah? Oftentimes, I want to talk to you about, or talk again to those of you who are in the pro-life movement. Sometimes I find, and you're going to hear this and you're going to be shocked, I find those who are in the pro-life movement... Lacking faith. Because they're almost, almost, almost falling in idolatry by raising the child in the womb to the level of a god. It's almost child worship. Why am I saying this? Because in the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of things, an abortion is not worse is not worse than receiving communion in a state of a mortal sin. That is worse. Because an abortion is done to a child who is born in sin. Yeah? 
receiving communion in a state of mortal sin is done to God Almighty, who is all pure. And, uh, and the gravity of a sin is proportionate to the purity and innocence of the victim. Yeah? You all know that. Somebody who kills a man versus somebody who kills a child. Everybody knows instinctively the second is worse than the first. Yes? That's why abortion is far more grievous than war. Why? Because the child is more innocent than the grown-up man. Who's more innocent? A child born in sin or Almighty God? Get it? Until and unless we all develop that consciousness of the holiness of this place for Jesus. Look, try to understand this. Here's God, God Almighty, who comes and locks himself into a box. I'm, I'm, I'm looking from the inside out now. It's a box. Now, for us, it is a tabernacle. It is worthy of all our uh, veneration. Yeah? From God's perspective, it's a box. He locks himself in there, and he makes himself vulnerable. Like a baby. Any one of us can take, can take an axe and go and desecrate the tabernacle. God is not going to strike you dead. He makes himself vulnerable like a baby. Yeah? If you had a baby, you make everything you can in your power to make the baby comfortable. Yes? The linens, the beds. The, you treat the baby with veneration, don't you? Look how we treat the Lord. Look how we treat the Lord. You understand our problem now? If we treat the Lord this way, why is He going to fix the world? Why? So He can blind us even further in thinking that what we're doing is great? Yeah? If we treat the Lord by building ugly churches, by pushing the tabernacle out, by talking in church, treating it like a theater, by not following the rubric, by not doing what the church tells us, coming him, insulting him, not going to confession, and making sure, I mean, on and on the list goes. Is it, would it be a curse or a blessing if he fixed the world? Yeah. You see it now? Now, I looked at it negatively. Let me look at it positively. Let me show you the warriors of Christ. Let me show you who saves the world. It's women. You know, if the women who, who instinctively understand what I'm talking about, this is something women understand far more easier than men. Because they have devotion to the, to the, to, 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 to the Holy Eucharist. Right? You see far more women kneeling before the Holy Eucharist than you see men. If these women understood that and came to church with a love of Jesus like a love of a child. That's why, by the way, I'm so happy we have the, you know, the devotion to the infant of pride. It's one of the most beautiful devotion there is. The devotion to infant of pride. Because that's Eucharistic. Okay? Develop a great devotion to the infant of pride. Because you understand the Eucharist way better. Yeah? If you can come with your maternal instinct and look at the Eucharist the way you look at the baby, first you'll understand Mary a lot better. You'll, get, you'll grow closer to her a lot quicker. 
And second, you'll start making reparation because you want to make the baby Jesus comfortable. It becomes a natural thing to do to make reparations for all those who mess the room. And when you do that, you save the world. That's what the real battle happens. Yes. As I'm saying, uh, contraception isn't just about sex. It's about the Eucharist also. We have a Eucharistic contraceptive mentality that sets in. Okay? We push Jesus out. It's not only the babies. The abortion, I'm telling you, abortion will not stop. There is no way abortion will stop until we stop aborting the Eucharist. Simple as that. There needs to be a great Eucharistic renewal and devotion to Jesus. You want to make a change in this church? Here. Get on your knees and pray to God so we can have perpetual adoration. Okay? That starts to changing everything in your church when you have perpetual adoration. And people are really committed to come. It, you're now making Jesus comfortable. Right? You're making him comfortable. Right? Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. So, anyhow, you see how God does not abide blood. So he can't abide. But yet, he sits in this little box and he puts up with us. Yeah? Because he's right now baby Jesus. But then when we meet him, he's going to be the king of kings. And always think about that holy recorder, huh? Yeah, well, confession. That's your eraser. Okay, last. Let's go through chapter 36. Chapter 36. Remember the case of these women who came to Moses and said, well, we don't have any men in our family. Does this mean we don't get our inheritance? And the only they are right, so far in Scripture, was for them. They're right. They should also receive their inheritance. Well, now, they're about to enter the land, so... The men in that tribe comes and says, okay, you've given them their inheritance, but what happens if they marry outside of our tribe? If they marry outside of our tribe, then the land will go to that other tribe. Hence, we will be losing our inheritance, our collectively. And Moses said, you're right. And therefore, the law that was stipulated is that if a woman has no Men in their family. There are no men in their family that these women must marry within their tribes. They must marry within their tribes and not outside of it. So as to keep the land within the tribe. Yeah? If you take a step back and you look at all these rules and you can see more of these in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you know that overall this is clunky. It's clunky because it's complicated. And you've got to think, can, can God do any better? The answer is yes, way better. But it's going to take a little while. Right? Because in the laws of the church, we have far fewer laws, and they're so much more efficacious than anything you'll find in the Old Testament. And the book ends on a note of marriage, because again, it is the most important image describing the relationship of God to his people. Now, the ending is abrupt because it's not the end of the book. Remember when I told you that the Pentateuch, the five books, are actually one book. And when it was written, there were no chapter division. There were no chapters and verses. If you look at a Hebrew scroll, 
you will not find chapters and divisions in the original. It's written as just one continuous scroll. So there is no empty page, turn the page, start a new book. Right? The next thing starts right, out, right after. But for us, it sounds a little abrupt. There's no the end or you know, something flowery or night. No, no. It wasn't meant to be this way. Yeah? Let's see. Was there something else I wanted to say about chapter 36? Yeah, actually, one more thing. That these women are so obedient to God's law that when they decided to marry, not only they decided to marry within their tribe, they selected husbands from their clan. The fact that coincides with the law of succession, when there are no children, the brothers of the deceased inherit the property. So they're all thinking ahead. If you don't have kids, who gets the property? It stayed not only in the tribe, but even in their own clan. Okay? And it is actually very interesting to see how these women selected a husband based on the decree of the Lord. That's how they selected their husband, based on what God wanted for them. Right? So, again, we need to teach our children to select, to find a husband and a wife who are godly. The ones that God wants to send them. Not the one that they'll find on the internet. Although sometimes God can use the internet. Right? Why not? But, but I think you get my drift. Not randomly selected. And parents, I hope you are praying for the spouses of your children. Now. Before they're married. So they be protected wherever they may be. Because hopefully they are born and they live somewhere out there now. So pray for these children who are going to marry your children. Yeah? So God can send you godly um, spouses for your children that you can be blessed with them. All right? So, again, remember, read the Catechism, read Scripture, Lives of the Saints, and keep up your prayer life. And, um, all right, questions? Yes. Yeah, I told you that one way for them to be married outside of the tribe isn't about a change of last name. It's really change of um, ancestral lineage. You kind of, you're adopted in the other tribe. You, you, if, if, so you could do that. But generally speaking, when you marry outside of your tribe, you follow the lineage of the man. Yeah. Um, the church's position on cremation is that um, it is um, the second option, not the first. But the church understands that there are um, situations where cremation may be the only way that you can deal with a situation. But if you do uh, go with cremation, it is required that the urn be buried. It can be put in a garden or out on a post or whatever. You have to get, collect all the ashes, put them in the urn, and you have to bury the urn. And that would be like a cemetery. Well, whatever you, you do with bodies, you have to do with the, with the urn. Yes. The idea is you cannot just go and hang it in your living room or uh, disperse the ashes out in the ocean or whatever. Right? Out of respect for the dead. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, you can put it into a... Uh, uh, provided it's a place that is respectful 
and protects the dignity of the person. And it's a place where you can go pray for the dead. Uh, that's what the church Essentially, similar to a cemetery. Yeah? The question is, numbers was very difficult to read. And uh, it, it made you... It didn't make logic. It didn't make sense. It didn't make logic. For me. Uh, and the question is, are, am I normal? Uh, you're very, very abnormal. Just kidding. Yes, absolutely. And yes, absolutely. And it, it is due to a number of factors. First, we have lost the culture. So generally speaking, the covenantal culture is not with us anymore. Secondly, our interaction with God is not on a God, on daughter, father basis. We, we have a really hard time mapping everything back to the family. We don't do that as a knee-jerk reaction. If you did that, it'd make, a lot, it'd make it a lot easier. It'd make it easier. Third, we're dealing with concepts and situations which are removed from us. And we have a hard time understanding them because we don't, you know, we never lived in a tent. We never pitched a tent the way they did. We don't have herds. We, I mean, much of what they're dealing with is not what we're dealing with. So, yes, it takes what I call a, almost a reverse engineering to reconstruct what the text is about for us to sort of understand it. It takes work. But God expects us to do that. Right? He expects to roll up our sleeves and just get on with it. And he will be there with us and helping us walk through it. But yeah, these are not easy books. Absolutely. Yes. How old is the child? Six years. So for children who are six years old, um, personally, this isn't what we've done because I came to this conclusion after my children gone through all of this, personally, I do not like, I do not like children Bible. The reason I'm saying this is because it paints everything with this rosy picture. Everything is cuddly and sweet. Jesus is always smiling, right? Everybody's nice. Then when a little older, they start reading the real thing, and they go, what happened? Right? I don't want to set up. I don't want to set them up with false expectation. Okay. Pardon. Yes. So instead, um, I will focus for six years old. I'll leave the Bible aside. I'll focus on the Baltimore Catechism or on a catechism. Teach them the faith. Teach them virtues. Teach them the basics they're going to need, so that when they hit Scripture, it'll be a little easier for them. If somebody's been trying to live a life of virtue, meaning they know what the virtues are and they're trying to live through it, it'll be a lot easier when you hit Scripture. Prepare them for But I would not get them studying Scripture. No, not, not the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Find a Catechism for children focused to their age and teach them the things that they need to. Even if you just taught them the natural law, you're already teaching them the faith. Right? Don't sugarcoat it for them. Don't make it sweet and easy and all that st- nonsense. Give them something they can contend with, they can work with. That's far better for them than any of that stuff. Now, for the teenagers, I do recommend to a certain degree, maybe 12 years and up, John Paul II has, um, there's some couple of students there who have done, who are actually writing a manga series on the Bible. And so they have the Gospels in manga. And I bought it for my kids. What's manga? Oh. Yes. Well, if your kids don't know about manga, don't, don't worry about it. But manga is a Japanese way of drawing comics. It's very common among many, many teenagers. 
So you have anime, which are Japanese animations, and you have manga, which are... Go to Borders and ask them for manga, pick it up, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Well, they did it in the manga series. Um, and that had led my children to quote from scripture because they read that thing, and I found it very funny. So it looked like it has some, some ability to teach them uh, the scriptures and get them to memorize it, which was, I thought was beneficial. But that would not be enough. But that's something they could, you could get at least a kid who never read scripture interested by giving something like this. All right? Uh, yeah. Above all, it is very important, and you will gain a lot from this, if every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, you can sit the kids after Mass. What was the reading about? What was the Gospel about? What did the priest say? What have you learned? Why was that said? If you do it Sunday after Sunday, they'll retaining their understanding of the Mass grows. Yes? Correct. The law, the Italian law, was to bring more justice, not less, into the equation. For us, it seems cruel because we are now able to take into consideration other, what we call, um, um, extenuating circumstances, which before they were not maybe necessarily able to do, although I'm not necessarily sure they were, be it as it may. We look at it as if it's a harsh law, but in fact, no, it is, it is a law that improves on the way in which you can apply justice. Absolutely. That is correct. Yes. Oh, we should continue to do pro-life. Absolutely. Full force. Don't get me wrong. All I'm saying is, as Catholics, you need to put your focus on pro-life within the context of the Eucharist. You see? You have to have a true devotion to Jesus in the Eucharist. And out of that devotion, out of love of baby Jesus, flows your love for all the babies. But you can't separate and divorce your love for the babies from the love of the Eucharist. Now, if you love the Eucharist more, or at least as much as you love the babies, then you start to worry about Jesus sitting here and how we treat the church. Therefore, you become truly liturgical. You see my point? All right? That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Do not make gods of whatever cause you're working on. Fair? And the only way you know that is if you really, as Catholics, if you really love the Mass, and it's very important to you, and it's close to your heart, and you're trying to live it as best as you can, and you're trying to increase your devotion to Jesus, then you know you're centered on God. From there, your action will bear fruit. From there, pro-life movement, defense of animals, um, wanting to stop, whatever God calls you to do will bear fruits. But if you do it aside... Apart from him, it's not going to bear fruits. Yes. Well, if you are receiving communion in a state of mortal sin, number one, your prayers are not answered. Okay. Actually, whether you're receiving communion or not, if you are in a state of mortal sin, your prayers are not answered apart from the prayer of forgiveness and repentance. Right? But any other prayer is not answered. Secondly, if you're receiving communion in a state of mortal sin you're receiving condemnation upon yourself. All right? It's going to impact your work. It's not going to increase it. So, yeah, my point, precisely. Yes, yes, that's my point. You've you got to be absolutely... You can't be doing pro-life as a Catholic and 
you know, using the pill and hoping he's going to be. Okay? Well, look at all the aspects of your life. You, got, you have to be Eucharistically centered. And in God, you come to him and say, what do you want me to do with the pro-life movement? He'll remind you, okay, number one, don't fret it. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. It's my pro-life movement. It's nobody's pro-life movement. Because there's only one pro-life movement. It started on the cross. Okay? Jesus has the copyright on this one. It's mine. You need to believe it is mine. I will do what I want to do. Okay? Now, do my will. That means, first, seek ye first the kingdom of God, the church, the worship of God, holiness, and then everything will be added unto thee. Yes? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Hold on. Good question. When you receive plenary indulgence, okay, what is the purpose of plenary indulgence? The plenary indulgence is when the church takes out of its treasury, out of her treasury of graces, and pays for the temporal punishment due to sin. So plenary indulgence is not about removal of sin. Make sense? A plenary indulgence does not take sin away. A plenary indulgence assumes you are in a state of grace because you went to confession. Yeah? But when you go to confession, God forgives you. Yes, but you still have temporal punishment that is due for those sins. You're going to have to pay for them. So that's why you get a penance. And the priest doesn't have to worry if the penance is enough or not, because he knows that it's not enough. God will supply the rest, either here or in purgatory, one way or the other. All right? So you still have to deal with that. The plenary indulgence is the church coming forward and saying, okay, I will pay for the temporal punishment. So you don't have to. There is a condition. No. It's more than the state of grace. Yes, they used to say specific. Those are partial, not plenary. A, pl- a plenary, it's all of it. Let's say, let's say, I need to spend 10,000 years in purgatory. Okay? So a plenary means it's all wiped out. It's all gone. Remember, purgatory is, is only for those who die in a state of grace and have only venial sins on their souls, or for those who have temporal punishment that they must pay. Satisfy. Yes, thank you. Better word. Satisfy. Yes? That's what purgatory is for. Purgatory is not for those poor people out there who don't know about the faith and they're just dying. No, no, no. You have to be in the state of grace. You have to be in the state of grace. And you have to have either, so therefore you have either venial sins or you're in state of grace and you have temporal Punishment you have to still atone for. Okay, that's where plenary indulgence comes through and says, all right, in this case, the church says, I'm going to take from my treasury, I'm going to cover for you, your debt is forgiven, go home, collect 200. Now, here is the condition. You have to have perfect contrition. You know what perfect contrition means? It means, let's clarify what that means. It doesn't mean you're playing buckets and buckets. It doesn't mean you feel emotional. You can have a completely dry, perfect contrition. You understand? I want to make sure you understand this. Uh, Because you have people who may have emotional blockages. 
They just can't cry. They can't just block. Does it mean that they cannot have a perfect contrition? God, isn't that cruel? So what does that mean? It means you're doing this perfect act of the will whereby you are sincerely sorry because of what you've done in offending God. You're not thinking about hell. You're not thinking about anything. You're only saying, I'm so sorry. For what I... It's like when you realize, um, like this nun, St. Therese was always smiling at her, right? So when St. Therese died, um, and the diary was now published, and this nun read it, and she's sitting there saying, well, I, I wonder who's, imagine what she did to this nun, and, and she was talking about it, and then finally she realized it was her. That, that moment of realization, right, the gratitude and the love and the things, even the flood of her heart, that's what I'm talking about here. It's a complete, sincere act of the will where you recognize you're a sinner, and you understand the depth of your sins, and you're saying to God, I'm so sorry. Now, here's the deal. You really think, and by the way, this is not something we can manufacture, so relax. There is no recipe for us to produce this. We cannot have it. Our hearts are too hard for contrition. Even with the graces, on our own, we cannot obtain perfect contrition. It's a gift from God. Now, ask yourself this question. You really think God is going to give somebody the gift of perfect contrition when this person shows no real devotion to the Eucharist, no real devotion to the Mass, no concerns for what Jesus in the Eucharist, none of that? You, th- you, you see the connection? Yeah. I mean, he can still do it because somebody holy might be saying, I want that guy in heaven. Please do something about it. And God will do it. But... Can, he, can we do something to prepare ourselves? Yes, that's what you do. You, all you can do is to prepare yourself. To say, I really want to receive it. Please give it to me. And he does. He will. But when you show him that you are taking that very seriously. That's what plenary indulgence. So, what do you do? Every occasion there is for an indulgence, you hop on the bus. Absolutely. You pray to God and you ask to give Him to give you that perfect contrition. And you leave the rest to Him. Oh yeah, that is a very powerful devotion. Yeah, the devotion to the blood of Jesus. It's on the website. Yeah, go to the website, click on uh, listen or read or something. Listen, I think, and you will find it there. I describe it in full detail. Pardon? Yes, but see, the, divi- the chapter of Divine Mercy is a wonderful chapter to say, but again... Uh, so on the feast of Mer- the, 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 the Sunday of Divine Mercy, there is a plenary indulgence. Right? But again, you have to have that perfect contrition. Otherwise, the good news, though, if you, don't have, if you have partial contrition, being contrite, you're not perfectly contrite, God, being gracious, removes some of the temporal punishment. Yeah. So yes, indulgence is a wonderful thing, and the devil knew what to attack, when he actually made Luther um, get rid of them. Well, of course, to, to receive the plenary indulgence are conditions. Usually conditions are you have to go to confession, you have to go to Mass, you have to say prayers for the Pope, and maybe sometimes you have to say the rosary. Some, there's some conditions that you have to follow for that plenary indulgence. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yes. When you're in time. Temporal punishment means when you're in time, and there is time in purgatory. Yes, absolutely. It includes purgatory. Yeah. Or it could be in this life. Or it could be in this life. 
but it's this temporal punishment that can be removed through plenary indulgence. Yep. All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.